No. Okay. <laughs> Got a couple of questions, you know. I'm up here. Take my time out of my day, my Sunday morning. Come up here, sing my song about my Jesus. Invite you guys to join in with me. And you come up with that? What do you mean? What do you mean? Your Bible? I mean, I feel. I feel the love. I don't read the love. I feel the love. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. What is the Bible? How do you know anything the Bible tells you? Should have been born in the 70s, shouldn't I? Feel the love. Why should we believe the Bible? Collectively, that is our assignment over these next couple of weeks, four weeks. Why should we believe the Bible? And uh, I want to suggest that this is a foundational doctrine, a foundational doctrine. The first doctrine that every single student of the Bible, when they head off to Bible college, uh, the first topic that somebody, when they're a new believer, should really engage with, this topic of bibliology. And if you can take me seriously, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you know, it's the second time I've sung in public and the first time. If you're at my wedding, you know what I'm talking about. Um, I actually said that's why I don't sing at Calvary Chapel and, and in my wedding speech and Mick yells out and that's why you never will. That's why I never have a mic in front of me up here. Um, so if you can please try and take me seriously, it is my, my honour. Truly, it is an honour, it is a privilege to be able to facilitate this. I want it to really be a dialogue not a monologue I'm gonna you know throw stuff at you today but going forward um, we're gonna have I don't quite know how we're gonna do it maybe some Q&A from the floor maybe text in certainly on Facebook if you have any questions please PM um, Facebook if you want my number or if you want to you know be anonymous or whatever then uh, we might get a sim card so you can text through uh, your questions because this is a dialogue this is a conversation to ask any question and you may have been a Christian for decades and you still have big questions about this stuff that is good that is right and we really want to try and answer those and get into those for you can't promise we can answer them uh, but there are answers out there and we'll do our best so this is our study here uh, you can see on the outline um, up on the screen that um, we've got four talks if you have a pen and paper I recommend if you don't have one that's fine but I recommend you go grab them um, for next week and take notes as we go um, and this will be our guide and every week you can see on the left of the screen there's a dull kind of red table of contents that'll just be the agenda as we go through to kind of see where we're at um, as we go through the talks so why should I believe the Bible asking that question uh, as adults that we just assumed in our favorite childhood Sunday school songs. If I came up to you and asked you, tell me, why should I believe the Bible? What are you going to say? In fact, why don't you turn to the person next to you, 30 seconds each, ask each other that question, and, uh, and we'll regroup in a minute.
How'd you go? Why should I believe the Bible? Well, I won't go around the room and ask. Uh, we've got precious little time here. Um, but if I could hazard a guess, if I'm mistaken, please come chat to me afterwards. But if I could hazard a guess, I want to say that every one of your answers could probably be squeezed into one of these three categories on the screen. The logical category. Why should I believe the Bible? Because it is consistent internally. It just works. Genesis to Revelation, coherence, consistency. There's a single un unfolding unit of a story of theology. It all just coheres. It makes sense. So that would be the logical category. Or maybe you answered it from the evidence category. Why should I believe the Bible? Because it corresponds to history. We've got so much stuff out there that just backs up the Bible, whether it's history books, whether it's Jewish authors, Roman authors, archaeology. We go out into the world, the environment, and we see in nature things that line up with what we see in Scripture. The manuscript evidence, things like that. Or maybe you answered from category three, the experience category. Because you were raised in a Christian home, and this is what you've just always experienced. You've just always believed in the Bible. That's just how you were raised. Or maybe you can just testify to the truth of this scripture because you know it intuitively to be true. Because you have experienced the love and mercy and grace of God as this Bible talks about in your life. You've seen it in your children. You've seen... The effects of sin on the nightly news that line up with what you read in the Bible. You, your experience of life testifies to the validity of this text. Maybe that was your answer. And if your answer came from all three categories, then that's the gravy answer. That's the, uh, the bonus. That's the cherry on the eye. That's good. That's good. But no matter what category you answered from, every category, logic, experience, evidence, all of them are legitimate. It's not right or wrong to answer from one or the other. It's good to answer from all because that's how we become persuasive in our answers. But every category is legitimate. Your experience is legitimate. Your evidence is legitimate, providing you can back it up. Your logic is legitimate, providing it is consistent, etc., etc. Why should I believe the Bible? That is a good question. It is a legitimate question. It is a real question, and we should not shy away from asking it. And we should not judge people for asking it, particularly Christians. And I think it is the most foundational of all questions. It's a big claim. Not who is God, not who is Jesus, not how do I get to heaven, but why should I believe the Bible? Because every answer you're going to give about God as a Christian, about God as a Bible-believing Christian, I have to qualify that, about God, about Jesus, about heaven, about hell, where are you going to get your answer from? You're going to get it from the Bible. This is the fundamental of fundamentals. So first of all, it is a foundational question. It is a foundational question. You know, if all the doctrines of 
Christianity are stacked up like a house. You've got Christology, pneumatology, that's doctrine of the Holy Spirit, ecclesiology, doctrine of the church, eschatology, doctrine of the end times, theology proper, doctrine of God. You've got, you know, and that, that includes things like Christology and the Trinity and all the rest, all these big ology words, right, that, that people like to say to, to sound good. If you stack those up like the walls and the floors and the roof, that's like the superstructure. That is the, the, the house. What do they all rest on? The Bible. That is the concrete slab that you build your house called Christian doctrine on top of. It is bibliology. That is why this is a foundational question. And I think, particularly in the day and age in which we live, it is the most important question that we can think through together as a church. We don't worship the Bible at Calvary Chapel. We don't worship. It's, it's, it's text on a page. That's, it's not the Times New Roman font that we're excited about here. Okay? We are, there's a word, bibliologists or something. I don't know. There's a weird word for that. And people, people get confused thinking that we love the text so much that we worship. But we don't do that. That's why I don't have any issues throwing my Bible on the floor. But I did that once with my mates uh, at college, his, at school, sorry. My next door neighbour at boarding school, his, he was a, a Muslim and we swapped. And I put his Quran on the floor which you don't do because that text is precious we don't have that attitude towards our bible today as christians as bible believing christians but we respect and honor the word the message the truth that it claims and holds within it is our canon it is our standard. It is our benchmark for everything you think you know and everything you don't know as a Christian. So when you talk to people about Christianity and you're in these conversations with your friends, being an um, obedient disciple of the Lord Jesus and going about this thing called the Great Commission, sharing the gospel, evangelizing, and you're talking to them about Christianity and you tell them what you believe about the hot topics of the day, and they say, well, that's, that's, that's totes cool, you know, whatevs. Hashtag YOLO. I mean, you only live once, that's the way you want to do it, that's cool. But um, hashtag me skeptic. So uh, why do you think I should believe? I'm sorry, I've been watching MKR, and those, that couple just <laughs> do that too much. Guilty. All right, that was, that was an overshare. Uh, um, all right, regroup. So, why should I believe the Bible? Why do, why do you believe what you believe? Why do you believe what you believe about these issues that you've just told me your opinion? Well, it's because I'm a Christian and that's what the Bible says. Okay, why do you believe the Bible? Um, and just watch how nine out of ten Christians crumble at that question. We aren't prepared, not all of us, but most of us. And I put myself in this basket too until I decided to study this, which was really only last year, seriously. We aren't prepared to obey Peter and give an answer for the hope that we have within, at least on this question. So it's a foundational question, but secondly, it is a loaded question. Why should I believe the Bible, David? Well, it's just as easy for me to come back to you and say, why shouldn't you believe the Bible? I'll tell you why I shouldn't believe the Bible, David. 
Because the Bible says, bang, 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 bang. It's a loaded question. People have reasons for why they don't believe the Bible. In fact, people wouldn't even ask the question, why should I believe the Bible, unless there was a reason for why they thought they shouldn't believe the Bible. And what's the ammo? What's the bullets? What are they shooting out with? Where are they getting them from? What's the ammo factory? Well, the ammo, the bullets, these are preconceived ideas about the Bible. And what's the ammo factory? Where do they come from? All over the place. All over the place. We have attacks on the integrity of the Bible today coming from the academy, from the universities, the institutions, ever since particularly the 1700s. Those old bearded guys with gowns and all the rest in university began to reason away why they believed the Bible. And this really hit a fever pitch last century, in the mid-20th century, with what is called liberal scholarship. You've heard Terry talk about liberalism quite a bit. That is the academic uh, arena that we get a lot of the, the liberalism that we see around churches today. It really came to a head there in the mid-20th centuries, and one group, for example, the Jesus Seminar, a group of 150 scholars who got around in 1985 to declare together what they believed was the historical validity of the text, and they used a whole array of coloured beads to cast their vote, cast their lot into a jar, and depending on the, whether it was black or red, uh, it was deemed as not sure, definitely not historical, definitely historical. Um, a whole array of different um, coloured beads for different qualifications for what they thought about certain texts in the Bible. And here is the stats that they came away with. This group of 150 Bible scholars. 82% of the Bible is not authentic. 16% is more doubtful. And 98% in total is is in doubt. We see attacks on the integrity of the Bible coming from the arts. We see it coming from movies. We see it coming from books. Everyone has probably heard of Dan Brown's 2003 hit, The Da Vinci Code. I read that book um, a couple of times and it makes a bunch of audacious claims to say the least. Claims like this. The Bible is a product, my dear, not of God. Man created it as a historical record. History has never had a definitive version of the book. We also see attacks on the Bible and the integrity of the Bible coming from the educational systems. If you want to talk to anyone about this, talk to Shinko. There's a reason why her job is going to be hard. I know the, the guy that she's taking over from. Uh, he's going off to Bible college now, and I can tell you what, he got hammered from the churches that were supporting him too, I might add. Shocking stuff was going on. It's going to be hard for Shinko in the educational system because it is hostile to this text. If you watch, if you, if you enjoy media, you watch, um, I don't know, the news, YouTube, talk shows, 
Think of Q&A on ABC on a Monday night. Tony Jones loves Christians. He doesn't. You should hear the way he asks questions about Christianity, the way that the questions are loaded and aggressive. Imagine, I mean, I could probably point you to one of their talks on this. Um, in fact, there was one with Peter Jensen on it, I think it was 2013. You should see that guy. Peter Jensen was a former Archbishop in Sydney of the Anglican Diocese. You should see how he handled gr fire with grace. He did that masterfully. You should really get online and look up Peter Jensen on Q&A. Uh, it was grace under fire. It was, it was a great example of how we should conduct ourselves in the hostile arena like that. But can you imagine an environment on Q&A where, say, the topic is science and they have a politician, a biologist, an NRL player and a Christian minister? Let's just call it Peter Jensen because he was on there. Who do you think everyone is going to look at as having the most prejudice? People are going to respect what the NRL player says more on these topics than the PhD Peter Jensen, Peter Jensen, who studied at Oxford, I believe. There is a hostility here. And not to cry victim on that, because the Bible talks about this. You know, We shouldn't be surprised about this attitude as Christians. But in the name of reason, are we really supposed to think that a Christian who writes a book about why they believe in God or a Christian kid who gets up for four weeks at a church and decides to speak on bibliology? Are we really supposed to think that because they have a commitment to Jesus, everything they say is going to be biased and skewed and prejudiced and not really authentic because they're not painting the true picture. But when somebody writes a book and calls it the God delusion, they're impartial and objective. That is the way the world thinks today. And that's why we have empty seats here today. Again, this isn't a shock, this isn't a surprise, this is what the Bible says as proof number one. <laughs> Attacks on the integrity and believability of the Bible come from everywhere, even from the pulpits of some so-called churches. I know one not far away. So again, not only is this a very good question, it's a divisive question. You might be uncomfortable at everything I've said and how aggressive I've been in this, but I'm just stating facts. It's a good question. It's a foundational question. It is a hard question. It is a loaded question. It's going to have loaded responses too. But it is also a very relevant question. And if the Bible is allowed to speak for itself, I want to suggest that it is an eternal question. And it matters about life and death. As C.S. Lewis so eloquently said, one must keep on pointing out that Christianity is a statement contained in the Bible, which, if false, is of no importance. And if true of infinite importance the one thing it cannot be is moderately important black and white either or no fence sitting on the bible either the god of the bible exists and this is his infinitely important word 
or the God of the Bible doesn't exist and this isn't his word. There cannot be anything in between. You cannot say we have the God of the Bible, we just don't know if he has his word because we only know the God of the Bible because of his word. And if we think that this is the scripture, when it's actually not, the Apostle Paul says to us, I pity you. I pity myself. Because if Jesus Christ was not risen, which is what the Bible talks about, then our faith is futile and those who have fallen asleep, who have died in Christ, have perished. If in this life we have hope in Christ, we of all men are to be pitied if this isn't true, if Jesus was not resurrected, if the dead did not rise, let us just eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. It's also a knowledge question. Aside from being a foundational and loaded question, the question is in essence a knowledge question. Why should I believe the Bible is a plea for knowledge? How can I know the Bible? What reason is there to believe in the Bible? What is your criteria that the Bible needs to meet? Your rational criteria that the Bible needs to meet for you to determine whether or not you should believe it? It's a knowledge question. How can you know? Well, you've already talked about some of those I trust together. How can you know? Because bang, 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 bang. Maybe a logical reason, maybe an evidence-based reason, maybe an experience-based reason. But it can't just be one reason and not the others. Because if your answer was only an answer from experience, if you believe or disbelieve based on your experience, then what happens when your experience changes? And our experiences change all the time. My goodness, if my marriage was based on how I felt, I wouldn't be married anymore. If our belief in the Bible was based on experience, then when our experience changes, our belief will change. The believability of the Bible, truth, is not determined by experience because logic and evidence will tell us that when you put your hand on a grill, even if you've never experienced that, you're going to get burnt. But likewise, it's not enough to just have your logic and your evidence and no experience. Maybe you're one of those, you know, sit in a room, read a book kind of guys like I try to be and uh, you know you just you just love the logic and you love the the evidence stuff but you're not happy clappy as much as others but then you have an experience an experience of pain and suffering and evil and you've spent so much time reasoning through logic and the evidence of other people's lives, all of the philosophical arguments about pain and suffering, and then you go through that, 
all of your logic, all of your evidence, you just wipe it off the table. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. The master of answering that question. His wife passed away. And he writes this little booklet called A Grief Observed, publishes it under a false name or no name, I can't remember. He didn't publish it under his own name because he was concerned that people might think he wasn't a Christian anymore because it was that raw and then he died. You can have all the logic and evidence you want and then when the evidence rooster comes home, you just watch out how that evidence, that sorry, the experience comes home to roost, you just watch out how that can wipe away all your logic and your evidence. So it's not one or the other, it's all. We need to be comprehensive with this. You see, we human beings are complex. There is a complexity about humanity. We are multi-dimensional, we're logical. We need our evidence-based you know, observations, tests, verifications. We need our experiences of emotions, some of us more than others. I worked that out pretty quickly. That Julie and I are different emotionally, my wife Julie, when we got married. That was a steep learning curve. I'm still on it. <laughs> there is diversity in this room. Some of us are more experienced, some of us are more cerebral. But there is unity in the fact that we are all people. We are all human beings. There is unity and diversity. Human beings are different to every other living thing that we know of in existence. I trust I don't need to reason that too much to you. Kai, have you been to a zoo? Okay, Josh, that didn't work. Josh, have you been to a zoo? <laughs> you have been to a zoo. All right, when you got to this zoo, Terry, man, you've got to work on this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, all right. Josh, so you went to a zoo. Can I ask, when you got to the zoo and you get to the front there, did, did they give you a, um, an animal guide to the humans or a human guide to the animals? I'm guessing that they did not give you an animal's guide to the humans. You got a guide to the park written by a human about the animals. There is a difference between human beings and animals. We don't have doggies getting together on a Sunday morning to talk about whether or not the Bible is truly the word of God. Woof, woof. What do you think, Coco? There is a glory about men and women, about boys and girls, about human beings that makes us distinct from everything else, that drives us to ask these foundational questions, loaded questions, knowledge-based questions about why we should believe the Bible and a whole host of other things. And you're probably thinking TikTok, you know, are you actually going to address the question or just talk about it? This is our assignment for this morning. Asking the question itself. This is our point. Because do you see what we've done with this question so far? Why should I believe the Bible? We've reduced it down to its essential elements. Um, I'm not really a cook. I try to cook. Um, but ja Jamie Oliver, man, that 30 minutes, mm -mm. 30 minute cookbooks, 
Mm -mm. <laughs> Two-hour cookbooks, and then it only sort of looks like what he has in his nice picture there. <laughs> and don't even get me started on the 15-minute cookbooks. Anyway, he's talking about reducing stuff once, and I had to Google that. I'm like, what the heck is that? Uh, and then folding? Like, the, anyway. Um, Reducing. When you reduce a broth, let's just call it a broth. When you reduce a broth, say on a, on a fry pan or you're boiling something in a pot and, and it says reduce it, let it simmer and reduce for 15 minutes. What is going on there? You've got your broth, you've got whatever's in there and it reduces, it evaporates, you've got the exhaust fan going and it, over time it just reduces down and it intensifies the flavour, it thickens the broth and it intensifies, you reduce that broth down to its essential elements about what it is really all about that broth the key ingredients that's what we've done we've taken this question why should i believe the bible we've reduced it down to its basic element you know reduce 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 bang 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 simmer 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 reduce down why should i believe the bible who is asking the question? That's ultimately where we go with this. Because every question is asked by a questioner. This is a questioner's question. Human beings ask questions. Who are you? Who is asking? Why should I believe the Bible? Who is asking? Whoever you are. Kai, Josh, Terry, Kylie, Kendall, Anders. Whoever you are, who is asking the question? People online sometime in the future listening. Who is asking the question? Because why should I believe the Bible is a question that will depend first and foremost on who is asking the question. What is your worldview? What is your logic? What is evidence to you? What is your experience of the Bible and so-called God? However you answer those questions will, will inform how you answer this question. That's why we have a lot of people who have been so hurt that will not hear a word of what we have to say here because they cannot get past category three of the pain that they experience. Who is asking the question? One of the first Christian books I ever read was by a Christian philosopher named James Sire. And the book was titled, Why Should Anyone Believe Anything at All? Listen to how he opens up the first chapter. He says, What makes the question, why should anyone believe anything at all, so problematic? I think it's because it strikes at the very heart of who we are as human beings. It raises for us questions that we just don't ordinarily ask ourselves. We believe. That's what we do to live. Believing is like breathing. We do it. But we only know we are doing it when something draws our attention to it. Most of the day, we simply breathe automatically. <sighs> yeah, I'm not thinking about that right now. Then we play tennis and we get short of breath. Our breathing becomes problematic and we notice it. 
so too with believing. Suddenly someone asks us and why we are doing it, believing, and we are at a loss. I, don't, I do believe, we say to ourselves, I believe lots of things from the simple matter of believing that my computer will work when I turn it on to the much more questionable belief that my broker is honest or my fiancé loves me the way she loves no one else, in a way that she loves no one else. Everything I do is predicated on belief. Sometimes I question my beliefs, especially the complex ones involving people, goals, politics and religion, but I always have them. Belief is automatic. Do you see what he's saying? We all have beliefs. Why should I believe the Bible is just a legitimate question as why shouldn't you believe the Bible? Because you all have a committed set of beliefs about the world that serve as the foundation for how we think, for how we feel, and for how we live. I believe when there's a bus coming on the road, I shouldn't cross. There's reasons for that even though I haven't experienced being hit by a bus. This is called a worldview. And mark this definition. A committed, a worldview is a committed set of beliefs about the world that serve as the foundation for how we think, feel and live. I don't know the background of everyone here, uh, but I want to suggest that we can't even begin to talk about this question, bibliology, why should I believe the Bible? We can't even engage in this unless we are ready and willing to admit that we all have a worldview, that we all have glasses that we put on, a lens through which we make sense, through which we reason with logic, that we observe evidence and that we've experienced things in life. And that is going to be critical as to how we address this question. Why should I believe the Bible? So the issue is not whether or not you have a worldview. We all have a worldview. The question is, do you have a good one or a bad one? And the measure of success as to whether or not you have a good worldview or a bad worldview is whether or not your worldview can account for the totality of logic, experience and evidence. And not just in how it answers questions, but how it even explains the very fact that you are asking a question. I don't know of a better way to go about testing your worldview than to study bibliology and why we should believe the Bible. So with that introduction, let me pray and let's get into it. Heavenly Father, uh, we... just want to say thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us minds to think about thinking. I pray, Lord, that as we get into this now, that we would all be ready and willing and open and honest and vulnerable enough to admit that we all come with a set of preconceived ideas about what is true and what isn't true. And that includes whether or not we think that the Bible is believable or not. Pray for everyone here, Lord, that we would 
just be so open and willing to hear your voice of truth through this study so that, Lord, we can not only answer this question with confidence but base our very lives and death and all of eternity on it. Break our pride. And, Father, I just pray that there would be people here who would come perhaps for the first time to a knowledge and a faith and a reasoned faith in the God of the Bible as revealed chiefly in his Son, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Because that is the only thing, Father, that makes any sense, not only of our questions, but even the asking of the questions and the questioner themselves. God, I just be with us, we ask. We just we need you here if this is gonna work. Guard my mouth, give me discernment. And just use me. Amen. All right, when we get into the study of bibliology, at first cab off the rank, don't worry, I appreciate that we're three quarters of the way through. Our first cab off the rank is called the Doctrine of Bibliology. From God to man. Very simply, sorry, the doctrine of revelation. From God to man. Very simply, revelation is the unveiling of truth. The revealing of truth. So the doctrine of revelation is the fact of divine communication from God to man. And what is the nature of revelation? Well, it's uh, helpful to distinguish revelation into, into two categories. Uh, general revelation and special revelation. General revelation refers to creation in general, that is physical nature. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of his hands. And it also refers to human nature, the law of, law of God written on our hearts and our conscience bears witness to it. That's general revelation. Special revelation refers to specific revelation from God to man, such as dreams, visions, appearances, certainly the supreme and ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ on earth for his 30 or so years. But the primary mode of special revelation for us today is the Bible. You can see that from Hebrews. So the nature of revelation is it's helpful to think of, of it generally and, and specially, specifically, in those two modes. And the Bible itself belongs to the category of special revelation. What about the source of revelation? Well, let's just assume for a moment that you've opened up a Bible for the first time. If you have a Bible, open it up with me, please. Let's just assume as you're opening up this Bible that you've never opened one up before in your life. Perhaps you haven't. Maybe now's a good time. You're in the right place, doing the right study. And you flick past the front matter, you get past the table of contents, and you get to that first page with the title Genesis. Never read a Bible before, and you read this line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that is just totally enough for you, so you shut the book. <laughs> Whoa. 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is an interesting sentence. It's not an explanation. It's not a description. It's not a justification. It is a declaration. In the beginning, God. That means that the very first sentence of the Bible and everything else that will follow presumes the existence of God. Therefore, bibliology, our time here over these four weeks, is not a study of the existence of God. The existence of God is a prerequisite for this study. So the Bible itself is built upon the foundation of the existence of God. And we see that here from the first sentence of Scripture. That means that what Scripture says, God says. And you see that all the way throughout the Bible. What Scripture says is God's speech. He is a God who spoke creation into existence. He is a God who spoke to the prophets. He is a God who spoke through Jesus. He is a God who spoke through the New Testament apostles. God speaks. Again, these are claims of Scripture. They don't try to justify themselves, but that is not the purpose of Scripture. They don't. Scripture does not try to justify whether or not God is there to speak. It just says he speaks. But if this is really God's word, then it kind of makes sense that God exists, right? I mean, how can you have the word of God without a God to give you the word? Um, you know, it's like if I went to, um, to Kurong and I was looking through the, the Christian living section and I see a book called A Christian's Guide to, to Growing Garlic by Jay Farnworth. He's not here. Anyways, if I was to go there and find a, a Christian's guide to growing garlic by Jane Farnworth, who is the kind of assumed expert behind that? Jay Farnworth. He's got some good stories about that. And he's learned a lot of lessons that we could all learn from. It's just logical that if you have a book that says it's written by a certain someone, that that certain someone exists. So that's why we're studying the Word of God, Bibliology, God is presumed. So biblical Christianity is a theistic worldview. Theism, theos, Greek for God. Theism, Godism, the belief in God. It is not atheistic, no theos, no God. It is not humanistic or human-centric. It is theocentric, God-centric. I've heard it said too often, by the way, you know, David, Christianity is such an egocentric worldview. How, who, I can't believe you think that this whole universe is as marvelous as it is. Have you looked through the Hubble telescope? I mean, this world is incredible, and you think it was all made for you. Man, that is so arrogant. Your worldview is just crazy. I don't know any Bible-believing Christian that would believe that. This world is not made for Christians, for, for people, for human beings. This world is theocentric. It is all about God. We have a functional role. Don't get me wrong. That's, you know, that's why we're not animals, dogs. We're different. But our functional role is to point to that fact that God is the be-all and end-all.
the purpose is God. We are just a purpose to that end. And so we see from the very first sentence of the Bible, in the beginning God, that this is a book about God. So man is not the measure of all things, as that bloke old Protagoras said back around the days of Nehemiah, I think, about 5th century BC, this old Greek philosopher. We all know that dictum, probably don't know the guy. Man is the measure of all things. No, the Bible says man is not the measure of all things. God is the measure of all things through which man is measured. How is that a reason, David? You can't just state that. The first reason why we should believe in the Bible is because of God. But how is that a reason? Well, again, we're only one sentence in the Bible. We've got 31,101 more to go, so let's just hold on. But this is the first sentence of the Bible. It tells us the first reason why we should believe the Bible is God. But, 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 but. (laughs) So if we want to know why I should believe the Bible, the first point would be God. If we want to know an answer to this question, we need to know who he is. The revelation of God to human beings is at the same time the revelation of human beings to human beings. That I may know thee and that I may know myself. That was a prayer from good old St. Augustine back in the 5th century AD. And that perfectly summarises all of Christian doctrine. That I may know thee and that I may know myself. That is Christianity. You could draw every doctrine, everything Terry has ever said from this pulpit, you could draw out of that little prayer. All knowledge comes from God. He is the foundation for logic, for evidence, for experience. And that is key. Because if there is no God, then it is all self-referential. And your logic has no explanation beyond its own ability. Your experience, sorry, your evidence won't mean anything other than what you deem as evidence. If you want to reject Matthew 14, Jesus walking on water, because you can't prove that with physics, then you're going to be frustrated with Matthew 14. Because your criteria demands that that be validated with the laws of Newtonian physics. And if your experience cannot handle, and your experience and your ability to endure your experiences, if they're self-referential, are only going to be as good as your ability to endure whatever it is that you go through. And let me... I had a mate that I grew up with in, uh, back home. And he is a testimony to this. His partner left, his child left. That was the basis, that was the slab, that was the reason for his existence and his experiences in life, and that was too great for him, so he ended it. What is your foundation? If this is true, if the Bible is true, then it is a life-changing revelation. If this revelation in the beginning God is true, it will change everything. Again, all of this goes to show that your belief in the Bible is contingent upon your belief or your worldview and whether or not it is willing and ready to handle the possibility that God exists. Again, all of, this, um, all of this is just about worldviews. That's the point here. It's really about a worldview issue. 
If this first sentence of the Bible is true, by the way, if this is true, this first sentence of the Bible, you've just knocked out atheism, you've just knocked out agnosticism, you've just knocked out pantheism, you've just knocked out panantheism, you've just knocked out deism, you've just knocked out finite godism, you've just knocked out polytheism. You're only left with the three big ones. We've just made it real easy for y'all. Judaism, Islam, Christianity, the three big theistic religions. Which one is it? Good question. If this first sentence is true, it narrows it right down. This is the bibliology challenge, folks, to test your worldview, Christian or not, and see how it responds to the question, why should I believe the Bible? And also to see what reasons it gives for why you even ask the question itself. Again, um, to claim agnosticism is just no answer because to say at the end of it all, we just cannot know, is to say you know enough that you cannot know. It, it, it's not an answer. It's, well, it is, but it's self-defeating. Christianity says human beings can know. We have the capacity to know thee, to know God, and to know an answer to this question because he has one, revealed himself. Revelation is God's self-disclosure, his personal communication to humanity. Tell me, in what sense could I say to have a marriage with my wife, Julie, if she was never revealed to me and she never communicated with me? In what sense could I say to know her? Well, I could study the theory of her, could talk to others about the theory of her. I could um, see on a you know, cool summer's night how I feel about my study of her. But in what sense could I say that this is a marriage? You can't. That's why we need special revelation. It's not enough to just have general revelation, to go out and look in the trees and feel that amazing feeling that we feel when we look at an incredible landscape. We need to have special revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. Human nature, the law written on our hearts. It has value. It points us towards something. That sunset, those signals of transcendence that we get when we read an incredible story, when we watch that movie that just moves us, when we listen to music, when we go on a walk in nature, when we feel the sting of death from those we love that just cry for something else. General revelation gives us that. It gives us the prod. It drives us to ask questions. It doesn't answer them. That's why we're asking the same questions today that dudes 3,000 years ago were asking. The biggest questions, quantum, sorry, um, you probably don't care about quantum physics. That stuff that Stephen Hawking is dealing with they were dealing with 700 years ago, trying to find a theory of everything. It is the same stuff. How do I explain it all? What is the... Einstein wanted a one-inch equation to explain it all. And he couldn't do it. Because he's only tracking in general revelation. We need special revelation. Who am I? Why am I here? What is wrong with the world? How can what is wrong be made right? That answer... That response comes from special revelation. 
We ask the question from general, we answer it from special. And that is why I love what Carl F. Henry, uh, a man who spent most of his academic career fighting off in the mid-20th centuries, you and I, whether or not you know that name, Carl F. Henry, you're a beneficiary of who he was and his work. He fought in, he did trench warfare against liberal scholarship. And it's because of men like him that were just spending most of their academic career just fighting these fights for the authenticity and the believability of the scriptures that we can now have good doctrine, good schools to go study at. And this is what he writes about special revelation. God loves us so much that he forfeited his own personal privacy to reveal himself to sinful creatures that we might know him. Isn't that incredible? That he forfeited his privacy. It's amazing. That is the relationship of the word to the world. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That's John 1, 1 to 3, and you should write that above Genesis 1, because it fits there. God is the source of revelation, both general and special. The progress of revelation. Another point to consider is the progressive nature of revelation. The Bible wasn't just downloaded in one hit. When we take the Bible for what it actually is, you can see how distinct it is from all other religious or holy books. Take, for example, the Islamic Quran. Any Muslim, my, my buddy that I lived with at, at uh, boarding school, you know, any Muslim, he as well, he, they, they, tell you, they will tell you that the Quran is a perfect word-for-word, singular, verbal, oral dictation from Allah to Muhammad the Prophet. The very word Quran literally means the recitation. It is mechanical dictation. By contrast, the words of the Bible are inspired, but nowhere does the Bible demand verbal perfection. Do we really want to say that one word would be better than another? That's why we can translate the Bible. And that's why whenever you translate the Islamic Quran, you actually damage the pure, perfect original language that it was written in, in Arabic. That's why they always usually have the Arabic and the English side by side if they don't speak Arabic, so that they can have it together. Unlike the Quran, which is largely a book of theology, singularly revealed from Allah to Muhammad, the Bible is an inspired book, but it is not just one book. It is a library of books. 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. Those split just happened in the course of history for the sake of explanation. So it's not, you know, an inspired distinction between the Old and the New Testament. That's just a helpful thing that people have done. Same with the chapters and verses. That's just a helpful thing that we've done to cut it up so we can refer to things. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And it was progressively revealed from Genesis to Revelation. It was written in... Three languages, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. It was written across three continents, Asia, Africa, Europe. It was written by over 40 authors, most of whom never met one another because they wrote over a period of some 1,600 years. Look up your dictionary. That would be the very definition of corroboration. This is unlike any other holy book we have. Compare that with Joseph Smith and Mormonism. Compare that with Muhammad and the Quran. Unparalleled, totally unique, totally distinct. 
It contains books of history, theology, philosophy, poetry, biographies. The central message of Christianity, Jesus Christ, is a historical message. That is profound because that means you can track that down and find out whether or not it was true. Joseph Smith's revelation got lost. People had to take his word for it. Muhammad's was all orally. It was only after he died, and it was over 23 years, it was only after Muhammad died that the guys decided to get together to doctrinate or, or actually write out the script of the oral tradition. And then the third caliph, in the transmission of that, brought all of the copies together, burnt them all, and said, this is actually it. There is, we're going to go into all of this later on, don't worry, but there is, the point is, it is unique, the Bible, not only in its revelation and inspiration, but in its transmission and its translation. I know this is, this is just making you I have all these questions. That's good. That's what we're doing here. We're just getting you guys excited. How can we explain the coherence and consistency of this book apart from divine revelation? I don't know. You tell me. I want to know. And if you believe that man could do all of this, then brother, sister, that is a miracle and you're so close. Just take another step. It would be a miracle for this to be possible. Truly. Thirdly, inspiration. From God, through man, to scripture. The second doctrine of bibliology is what is called the doctrine of inspiration. If revelation is the unveiling or communication of truth, then inspiration is the written means through which God reveals himself. Revelation is the fact of, of biblical revelation. Sorry, revelation is the fact of biblical, of the Bible. Inspiration is the means of the Bible. From God through man to paper or parchment or vellum or stone or clay tablets, papyrus. What is the source of inspiration? The Bible talks about the source of inspiration directly in 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you want to flick there with me. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Not much further to go. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to look here at verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This is the only time in your English Bible you're going to see that word inspired or inspiration. And it's really quite an unfortunate word, if you want to be honest. Because uh, when we hear the word inspired, what do we usually think of? Uh, sitting on a headland, breeze going through our hair, looking at that sunset, inspired by it all, and we just, we just write poetry. When we think of the word inspiration, we think of Beethoven and his nine symphonies. We think of Handel's Messiah. It's not at all what Paul is talking about. Paul is not saying that the human authors of Scripture were inspired. He's not saying that he looked at a sunset and felt compelled to write Romans. Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. Their throats are an open grave. <laughs> That is not what inspiration is. 
The word in the Greek is theonoustos, which literally means God breathed. Theo meaning God, noustos from where we get our word pneuma, pneumatic, pneumonia, air. But when William Tyndale translated this back in the 16th century, old Bill, he made a bit of a blunder because he used the word inspire, which means inhale. When the word here, theonoustos, actually means exhale or God breathed. Inspiro means to breathe in. Theonoustos means out. You know exactly what I'm talking about. When you speak to somebody and they've been drinking coffee all day, probably going to happen after church, you know you're going to be close enough and you're just going to be like, Ooh. or if they've had a mint, it's kind of quite nice. You're saying, nice. <laughs> when you speak, your voice, your vocal cords, your mouth, your tongue, they're all working together, air's coming out. That is how we communicate. God breathes. That means that when you read this Bible right, right in front of you today, what this is, it is just the same as whether or not God is standing right in front of you talking to you. That is what the Bible is. Divine revelation inspired into this text. God breathed. That is the way you think of the text. That is why we're excited about this. We don't worship the breath. We worship the one whose breath it is. God breathed. The locus of inspiration, the locality, for want of a better word. Notice what Paul says and what he doesn't say. Please pay attention to this because we get this so wrong all the time. He says, Scripture is inspired by God. The thing that is inspired is not the author. It is the text. It is the text. Have you ever thought or have you ever talked to people who say, can't trust the Bible because men wrote the Bible. Can't trust nothing written by men. I can do that because I'm half American. I'm sorry. Um, I have voting rights. Human beings are not perfect. And the Bible, I mean, that's the whole point of the Bible, is to make that point that we can't do this thing on our own. And so it's not suggesting that the authors of Scripture are perfect. That is not what inspiration means. It was never the individual. It was the text that they produced. And it wasn't even them that produced it. Because as we see here by Peter, 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved. The Holy Spirit moved them to produce an inspired text each man was moved luke the doctor was moved that's why when you read the gospel of luke he's got physician terminology peter the fisherman was moved that's why when you read peter his letters you've got fisherman terminology god doesn't override humanity he uses and moves humanity to produce his inspired text liberal scholars are so quick to point this out but david Paul wrote much more than just the two letters to Corinthians. There's probably four letters to Corinthians out there. That is not a scandal. Paul talks about that in 1 and 2 Corinthians, about how he wrote these other letters to them. And we don't have them. Oh, so we can't actually know the scripture? No. Not everything Paul wrote, not everything the authors of scripture wrote was inspired. But everything that was inspired is in the Bible. How can you say that? Hold on, please. We've got three more weeks. 
the text, the sentences, the words, the paragraphs. Again, hang out and we're going to dive into that big time next week. For now, we're just seeing what the Bible claims for itself. If you want to know the theological jargon for what we've just talked about, it's called verbal plenary inspiration. That is what we believe here at Calvary Chapel. Unashamedly. The location, the place of inspiration is the text of Scripture. The extent of inspiration. Again, look at what Paul says here in verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. Not just the parts that are easy to follow, not just the I love my Jesus, he loves me, I'm going to go to heaven and thank you for grace. All of it. The fiery furnace, the beast on the shore, and everything in between the judgment and hell. All scripture is God-breathed. What about the implications of inspiration? And this leads us to a number of things that are going to be controversial and hard to accept. But again, if the Bible is special revelation of a divinely inspired word from God to humanity, then that means by default that no other revelation that claims to be revelation or claims to be inspired is, at least not according to the Bible. You've just knocked out Judaism and Islam. We'd already knocked out everything else with the first verse. You've just knocked out everything. If this is true, if the word of God, if the Bible is true, nothing else apart from it that, that, is, that does not conform to what it claims to be true is true. Of course, there's lots of truth outside of the Bible that's not in the Bible, like the law of gravity, for example. But if it is diametrically opposed to what the Bible says, then the Bible says it is not true. There is only one revelation, there is only one inspired text. And God has not just revealed himself to us intuitively. He's not just revealed himself in nature, in vague concepts of you know, ideas that we can muse about and speculate over. He has revealed himself to us in words. We're going to close here soon, but I just want you to think about the importance of words. Words are incredible things. No matter what script or language or dialect or whatever it is that you communicate in or write in, words are functionally the same. They are symbols which communicate and carry information. We can speak them, but we can also write them down. And what is incredible about when you write words down is that they're fixed. They're objective. They're finished. But we live in a time of history that has a love-hate relationship with words. Because on the one hand, we have people saying that we cannot really know the meaning of words. We cannot really know the meaning of the words in the Bible because the meaning is not in the words, like we just talked about. It's not verbal plenary. The meaning is in the eye of the beholder. It's actually in the eyes of the author. That's where the meaning is, and we can't access their heads so we really can't know anything. Certainly not what Paul meant when he wrote what he wrote. The reason why that is just sheer madness, by the way, 
is because people who make this argument are using words. You just tie the noose around your own neck and fall. That's what's going on in the academy today. I wish I was making this up, but you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. You guys know exactly, look at what we're debating in Parliament. This has led to the plain twisting, the, script, the, the twisting of the plain words of Scripture. That is why you have people justifying all sorts of cultural issues today from the text of the Bible because they can change the meaning of words to suit their agendas. For today, and then they'll change them tomorrow. So on the one hand, we hate words, but on the other... We love them. I had a one and a half hour long conversation with a colleague of mine just before Christmas and we talked about this and he just would, he's a sharp guy, and he just would not let up that, that he does not want to define himself or his beliefs as anything. He just would not say whether or not he believes in God or not in God because that would be a pigeonhole, that would be restrictive, that would be narrow, that would be too judgmental. He didn't want to say that and he said that's actually the problem with Christians and all these religions is it says it's this and it's not that. That's what language is, guys. That's what language is. That's what words were designed for. They are symbols which carry information. That is a chair. That is a table. Tristan is a man. Carla is a woman. See how relevant this is? We have a love-hate relationship because nobody can actually live without the restriction of words. I want a pilot who's not troubled by the fact that bearing 025 is in the opposite direction of bearing 225 where he's meant to be going. I want an oven that uses symbols to restrict the meaning of 220 degrees Celsius to 220 degrees Celsius. Otherwise, my baking's not going to look real good. I want a contract on my house that says it is $400,000. I don't want my trusty real estate agent to look at me and say, mate, she's all right. I know it's $400,000. We can just... I, I want that in writing and I want to sign it by you, me and a whole bunch of other people. And I even want to have, you know, another 80 pages worth of clauses behind that to back up what that actually means in writing. <laughs> and you're going to scan it, you're going to email it to me, you're going to have a copy there, I'm going to have a copy here and put it in my vault. We want this in writing. I do not want to walk the podium at my university where I've slaved away for four and a half years trying to earn a PhD, only to get up the front, have the chancellor look at me and say, congratulations, David, you have worked so hard for this. Here, have a PhD. Take my word for it. We cannot live without words. Words judge us. Words restrict us. Words limit us. That is the very meaning of words and sentences and paragraphs. It means this and it doesn't mean that. So friends, we have right in front of us today a written text. We're going to study it now for the next three weeks as to whether or not we can believe it. It is not just an idea. It is definitive. It has a meaning. It says this. It does not say that. It says this is true and therefore all of that is not true. It's going to be harsh. It's going to grate against our cultural ethos today like fingernails across the chalkboard and you're going to have to wrestle with that as I do and then ask yourself why is this a problem for me because I know 2 plus 2 equals 4 and not 6 if God has revealed himself if this is his revealed inspired word then you and I can know not only answers to our biggest questions but we can know, truly know 
the answer to the question, why should I believe the Bible? And more than that, the very person who's asking the question. Let's pray and uh, look forward to the week ahead. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together. Uh, We thank you for your word. I thank you for the patience of everyone here (laughs) to get through all that. Uh, Lord, I I just thank you, though, uh, first and foremost, that you have not led us to wonder and to worry and float around lost in this sea of life, wondering who we are and where we are and what's wrong with the world and how can what is wrong be made right, Lord. We don't have to make up our own answers to these basic human questions that every single generation from the dawn of civilization has asked because in the beginning, God. You have revealed yourself to us in your word and that is assured by the inspiration of those instruments, human beings, that you so humbly allowed to author your words to us for. And that kind of makes sense because if you're going to reach out to us, you need to, you spoke through people to people and more than that though, you came as a person to testify to your word and God, you are good and you are gracious in that you communicate to us in the way you do, that you forfeit your own glory to reveal the private side of things. We don't have it all. That's good because we aren't God. The secret things belong to you, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons that we may observe them. God, I just pray uh, that moving forward into this week, um, that that our times next week and the weeks that follow, that we would uh, just bow the knee to what your word says. At least bow the the knee of willingness to what your word says. And Lord, for those of us here who have not or think that we have and realize in the course of this month that we haven't, receive you for the very first time through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Saviour. Lord, I thank you um, for giving me the opportunity to teach you this. I do ask, though, Lord, uh, that you would just please look after me, guard my mouth, guard my mind, guard my heart, and most of all, Lord, just guard my ego. I just, I get excited, but I, I need this revelation to be so true for me now more than ever if I'm going to be talking about it. And it is tough to speak because, wow, you know, the enemy just comes at you. So, Lord, just give me discernment. I ask for wisdom. I ask for grace. I ask for time uh, that I would honour this pulpit, but, Lord, I wouldn't neglect my time with you. I wouldn't neglect my wife. I wouldn't neglect my work or my studies. Just move, Calvary, for 2017, for your end, we pray. Because your word is stable and it is not idle. It is our life. Amen.